If you have your Bibles, um, we're going to read, Will's going to read for me from Exodus in chapter 20 and follow along from verse 18 to 26. Before we come to God's word, would you join me in bowing your heads in prayer? <coughs> Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this Lord's Day that you've given to us, a day set apart from the rest of the week where we, where we come to you and we, nothing in our hands we bring, but simply to that cross we cling. And Lord, we find out about that, that cross in, in your holy word, the, the Bible that makes us wise for salvation. And so, Lord... I pray that you would open our eyes, that you would open our eyes to behold the wondrous things of our Lord, of your Lord. And Lord, give us attentive ears to hear the message that you have for each one of us. I pray this all in the name of your Son, who died for our sins. Amen. Amen. So this reading is from Exodus 20, I'm going to begin in verse 18. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning, and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And, and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off, while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, and nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me, and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones, but if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. This is the holy and inerrant word of God. Amen. Thank you. How do you respond when you're given a command or a set of commands. I suppose for the military, when a commanding office, officer gives a report, the response is, or should be, yes sir. I guess if it was the uh, king who gives you a command, King Charles III, I guess, I hope you would say, as you wish, my lord, or my liege, um, if your boss tells you to do something, I guess most people probably smile and then do it and complain about him behind his back. If your brother and sister tell you to do something, I guess you fold your arms, plant your feet and say, you're not my boss. And if your dad and mum tell you to do something, a kind of glaze may come over your face. Her lips are moving, is she saying anything? Is there someone behind her? Anyway, I don't understand. But how do you respond when somebody tells you what to do. And sometimes we must confess that we sinfully, if anyone tells us what to do, we react against it, don't we? We react against it if someone tells us what to do. And if it sounds in any way authoritative, 
then it's a problem. But how do you respond when that person who is telling you what to do is God? Is God. Because we've just gone through the Ten Commandments. And I hope, I really do hope, I'm not going to test anybody, that you'd have a pretty good job of listing those Ten Commandments. I think, I hope I've given you ample opportunity. But have you ever stopped to think, after that you hear them, after you memorise them, that we learn about them, how do we respond to them? How do we apply them? And I think many times we go through Exodus and we go through the crossing of the Red Sea, we go through the wilderness, we go through the giving of the law, and we kind of stop. We kind of know roughly where the golden calf is, do you know what I mean? And we know roughly where it is. But that's kind of like our broad level of understanding of Exodus. But the, the subsequent chapters to Exodus 20 are really, really important because they tell us, they, they apply the, the moral law of God. They apply the moral law of God. And as we will see, and some of them are uncomfortable to hear. Next week we're talking about slavery. And then the week after, we'll be talking about an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. So you can, you know, and then after that, restitution. So if anyone here has an oxen and it goes and tramples someone to death, well, it depends on whether it had done it before, whether you get put to death. So, I mean, there are all kinds of laws and how we apply them in examples, but they stem from the giving of the law. And we don't see that the Israelites are given, they were given an opportunity to respond to the commandments. They didn't receive a booklet from heaven that, that said, here are ten rules. They didn't even have a nice chiselled piece of granite. They didn't, you know, like some people would like to put in their homes a chiselled piece of granite with the ten commandments. No, God spoke to them. God spoke to them. God spoke to Moses. God spoke to the people. They experienced something and they responded. Now, I've said this time and time over, and it's important when preaching through Exodus to understand this, that the Israelites are already a saved people. They point to those who have been saved. That They point to those who are saved because God has delivered them out of slavery in Egypt. He, when they crossed the Red Sea, they were delivered, they were rescued from Egyptian slavery. So they, they are redeemed. So their response is not going to be, we have ten commandments to do if we want God to love us, and if we want God to rescue us, or if we want God to keep on loving us, we're really going to have to get our act together and nail these things. Now we think of the law leading to the gospel, and it does so in a theological sense that the law shows us our sin and our need of a saviour. We receive the good news of Jesus Christ, but you could also argue in a redemptive historical sense that the gospel leads to law, because the gospel, which is the good news of God's deliverance, saving his people from Egypt, and then we have the law. So then, how should we live? At the end of chapter 20, the proper response 
to the giving of the law of God is simple and is twofold. There should be fear, not any sort of fear, and worship, not every kind of worship. Not any sort of fear and not any kind of worship. God is looking for a certain kind of fear and he's looking for a certain type of worship. And that's what we see in our response to the law of God. So the first is fear. And look at what they experience in verses 18 through 21. In verse 18 we read, When all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. All of their sense, all of their senses are engaged. You've got sight, you've got sound, you've got touch, you've got taste. Maybe there was an acrid taste in the smoky atmosphere. A smell. Maybe all their senses are engaged with this experience. And this is God who's come down to visit them. Now normally in Holy Scripture, when you have this fire and smoke, you think of a theopony. And a theopony is a God appearing. We do not celebrate Epiphany, which is in January, which is where some traditions celebrate the appearance of the three wise men. The three wise men, maybe months or years after the birth of Christ. Epiphany. So theopony is God appearing. You remember the classic example in Genesis 15, when Abraham falls into a deep and dark sleep and has this vision. And it's a vision of a smoking firepot of flame and smoke and the animal carcasses are torn in two, and the smoking firepot marches through the animal carcasses, hewn on either side. Because it is a sign of the covenant curse, what will become of you? And in the ancient world, they cut up these animals, and they put a dead animal on this side and that side, and the one who was making the covenant would walk through as to say, May it be so to me if I should fail to keep my end of the covenant. May I be cut in two as these animals. But the amazing thing in Abraham's dream is that the smoking firepot is a theopony of God himself. God himself marching through the animals on either side as if to say may I be torn in two should I fail to keep my end of the covenant you trace that all the way to the New Testament what an amazing promise keeping covenant keeping God we have because our God kept the covenant and Christ was the one who was torn Christ was the one who was crucified for our sakes the covenant breakers. That is the gospel. It is God himself who was broken. But not for his covenant breaking, but for ours. So, and then the smoking firepot, there's a theopony. So you have in the sound and the sight and the smoke and the flame, a theopony, which is God appearing to his people. And then see the threefold response of the people in verse 18. They were afraid, they trembled, and they stood afar off. Afraid, tremble, afar off. So there's an emotional response. They are afraid. 
They're afraid. That is, they're, you know, they're emotionally afraid. And then there's a physical response. They're trembling. They are trembling. But then there's a spiritual response. They stand back. See that threefold response? The emotional, they're afraid. The physical, they tremble. And the spiritual, they stand back. When God visits them on the mountain, they didn't say, God is over there. Let's just make a great big clangy noise and go and hang out with God. They didn't. They didn't. They didn't. They took a step back. As if to say, God is there. We must be careful. And they hadn't even had time to break the Ten Commandments. Maybe they had in their heart somewhere, but in the reading of God's word, they've not even had time to break the Ten Commandments. So given five seconds, they will. And they tremble before this God for the fact that he is God. They trembled. Have you ever asked yourself, we talked on Thursday night about how Mark Dever said that when it comes, what does he pray for people? Is that he prays that they've come to a conviction of sin. But have you ever trembled in the sight of God? Have you ever trembled in the sight of God? I think it's a long time since, for most of us, that we were quaking to think of standing in the presence of God. Think of the word trifle. I know not what you're thinking of, but no, a trifle is, in, you know, with all the, the, the dessert thingy, Bob. But a trifle is something small. A trifle is something little. A trifle is to play around with someone or something carelessly or without respect. Trifling is the opposite of the fear of God. To fear the Lord is to understand that the almighty, eternal God is not someone we can trifle with. It's not someone we can be trifled with. God is no small God. He calls us to faithfulness. Are you more faithful to the world or are you faithful to the God before whom we all should tremble? How do you understand God? He is big. He is not a joke. He is not playing games. He is not a benign, affirming Santa Claus. He is not a tame lion. He is not to be trifled with. So they are afraid, they tremble, they stand afar off. And now look what they say to Moses. Verse 19, you speak to us and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us lest we die. If you go to Exodus 19, if you remember in verse 12, it said, when they take care not to go up to the mountain or touch the edge of the mountain, whoever touches it shall be put to death. And in verse 21 of chapter 19, the Lord said to Moses, go and warn the people lest they break through to the Lord to look and many of them perish. And then verses 23 and 24, Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself set limits around the mountain. And the Lord said, go down and come bring in Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord lest he break out against them. This wasn't an idle threat. The Lord had repeated it repeatedly in chapter 19. Don't go too close to the mountain. I'm coming down on the mountain. If you break through and if you touch it and get too close, you will surely die. 
Many people in our world fancy themselves as spiritual people. It amazes me sometimes, but um, many people in our culture, and probably attention-seeking people, think you know that they're spiritual people, and they're happy to talk about spirituality, even talk about the divine or some absolute power or some higher being or someone greater than themselves. But they talk about these things never contemplating the godness of God, the otherness, the godness of God. When people casually announce, yeah, I'm very spiritual, I have a close, intimate relationship with God, I immediately think, well, how, how are you going to do that? What are you talking about? It's not the people, it's not the picture of God coming down on the mountain. And have you ever caught yourself saying, if only God would somehow speak directly to us, I would know what to do if God spoke audibly to me. Careful. Be very careful. Because Israelites said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. If we don't have a mediator, my friends, we're done. We're finished. And look at what Moses clarifies to them. It may seem strange, it may seem irrelevant, they may even seem offensive, it's anything but. I would dare say you cannot fully understand Christianity without understanding verse 20. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. Why do I say you cannot understand what it means to be a Christian until you get the truth of verse 20? You may have skipped over verse 20 your whole life. Verse 20 tells us what is a contradiction, seems to be. Do not be afraid, be very afraid. Do not be afraid, be very afraid. And as Christians, we must know that there is a fear we ought not to have when approaching God. Must, we must reiterate that. And there's a fear we should never be without when approaching God. Verse 20 tells us both things. Because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and perfect love casts out fear. And both are true. The beginning of the Lord is the fear, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and perfect love casts out fear. Verse 20, there is a fear that can drive you away, and then there is a fear that brings you close. Don't have the fear that drives you away. If you're gonna come close and he wants you to come close, you do so in fear and trembling. That's why we confess our sins, so we come to the table with fear and trembling. And the purpose of this fear is that you would not sin. The Lord does not want us to sin. The purpose of this fear is to obey. A worldly, servile fear that we ought not to have, that fear leads you to hide and flee. But the fear that we should have leads you to obey. So the fear that we should not have will cause you to flee. The flea that we should have causes us to obey. <clears throat> Obedience as a category does not disappear for a people saved, with grace, saved by grace. If there's one thing that I feel that I should have taught more in my ministry if I look back over the years, is to make it clear that obedience doesn't disappear. It's right to stress that we're saved by grace, that obedience can never save us. 
But obedience doesn't disappear when we're saved by grace. God did never, never said, I saved you from Egypt. I've given you the Ten Commandments, but you don't really have to obey them. Because we, I know you never will. No, we should have the fear of the Lord so we may not sin. And we have a fear when we approach God, but it's a fear that compels us, that constrains us to come. Not a fear that pushes us away. And when we come, this fear would have us come carefully, reverently and humbly. It's a healthy fear. Fear can be healthy. Do you agree with me? Fear can help you drive carefully, which is good. Fear can get you to take your medicine, which is good. Fear can get you to eat healthily and to start exercising. Fear can tell you how to handle a knife or a saw correctly. Fear can make you study for an exam. Fear can push you in a race. Fear can make you climb a mountain. That's healthy fear. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We're never better off for having sins. Don't look back at sin fondly, you know, like a favourite coat or something like that. We're never better off for having learnt the hard way through sin. God is gracious. He turns our sins. We see that. He uses them for his own good, but we're never better off for having sinned. Zechariah 1 verse 5, Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, As the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so has he dealt with us. Where are those people? Gone. There is a lot of people who think that they, they can outrun the word of God, that they can run further than his commands, and they can go ahead. Zechariah says, they overtake you. You can never outrun the word of God. His word will last longer than you. His truth will last longer than you. And if you live a life despising God's word, they will catch up with you when you stand before God. That's what we need to get through. That's what, that's, that's what we need to say. If you live a life despairing and despising God's word, it will catch up with you when you stand before him. You will wish you had not run the race the way you did. There's a healthy fear. They trembled. Secondly, worship on God's terms. Verse 22 begins what is known as the Covenant Code, which runs all the way to the end of chapter 23. And it's significant that the first set of instructions following the Ten Commandments in what is known as the Covenant Code has to do with worship. And we tend to think that worship is measured as how we feel when we worship. And I'm not anti-feeling. But we tend to measure worship as I feel, whereas worship in the Bible is measured by how God feels about our offering. When we say, maybe in the car on the way home, how was worship? Many times we say it was great, 
because they played my favourite hymn. But we want affection, we want feeling, we want head and heart engaged. But just don't think that's the measure that worship was good when you felt something. The measure of worship is what does God think and feel about your worship? And notice the first thing that God does is reiterate the first and second commandments in verse 22. Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, you have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make yourself gods of, go gods of gold. In other words, God says, remember, there are no other gods. I cannot brook idols, the first and second commandments. He says, you saw I spoke. Don't try and make gods that you can see. And then God says, be careful, be very careful how you come. Now that seems strange to us until we understand what's happening here. Verse 26. And it's actually quite instructive. I had quite a time studying this. You shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. When Moses goes up at this stage in redemptive history, God is not looking for something fancy. God did not want steps that went up to an elaborate procession to some high and exalted pulpit or altar. Because at this stage in redemption's history, really practically, they didn't have the linen undergarments that would be a specific requirement for the priest. So his nakedness would have been made known as he ascended the steps. It's that simple. That's what it meant. And he didn't want the priest's nakedness to defile the worship or to distract from the worship. And if you say, that's God really caring about the specifics of worship. You can never say, God does not really care about the specifics of worship as long as we get the big picture. No, God is saying, Moses, no steps. No steps. Until you've got something underneath, no steps. I do not want your nakedness exposed. And it reminds us that the worship of God should be intimate, but never casual. And I'm not talking about attire, I'm talking about attitude. And we can talk about, given a cultural context, how does your attire then reflect an attitude? And that can vary from person to person, culture to culture. And that is somewhat contextualised. But this is what is absolute. The worship of God is intimate, but never casual. We live in a culture of militant informality. Militant informality. And that has a great levelling effect, which is good and bad. It means that people aren't set apart, places aren't set apart, Times and occasions are rarely set apart. It makes life easy and practical in some ways. But what it has meant, I think especially in the church over the last decades, is that we struggle to understand the weight and the glory and the otherness of God. Because it's all been based about what's suitable, what's convenient, what's better for me. Because we think that God should be happy that I'm coming to him. 
And therefore I can approach God any place, any time I want. Why can't I? And one simple reason is that God is God and you are not. As simple as that. That God is God and you are not. And until you get that, you haven't understood the first thing of biblical Christianity. And nothing else in the Bible will make sense. Because that's what the, the first lie of the serpent. Did God really say? Is God really God or are you God? And we've been doing it ever since. Every day. All the sacrifices. Even the death on the cross. I often think about that. We celebrate so great a saviour, but we won't realise we need a saviour until we realise that we are a big sinner. Not that we made mistakes, not that our parents were messed up, not because I was messed up at school. No, you're a sinner, you're born in sin, you're dead in your trespasses, and you need a rescue outside of yourself. And God in his mercy has sent his son. Until we understand that God is God and it is against him that we have sinned, Christianity will not make any sense at all. There's a gulf between the otherness of God and sinful man. And the entire storyline of scripture makes no sense until you grasp the gulf between the creator and the creature. So you do not worship God however you think he would like to be worshipped, you worship God as he demands to be worshipped. And we worship according to God's way. And we worship according to God's provision. You may not have noticed this, but it's shot through the entire section. Fear, worship. How do we worship? But we've gathered here this morning and we worship because God has provided a way. God made a way when there was no way. We don't often think of the condescension, the revelation itself. We have a Bible, we call it God's Word. And God appears and speaks to Moses. And we fail to appreciate what an act of condescension that is, that the Creator would talk to his creatures. God did not have to talk to us. He could have been in a cloud of mysterious unknowing and say, you figure it out. But God came, God comes, God speaks. So revelation is itself a provision for worship, as is atonement. And see what God says, I don't want statues of silver or gold. What does God want? An altar of earth. You sacrifice your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. At least at this point, in Israel's history, God says, all I want is dirt. Just put a pile of dirt. Make a pile of dirt. At this point in redemption's history, a pile of dirt and a makeshift outdoor grill. I don't want you to imitate the nations. I don't want you to make it fancy. There will be other requirements when we come to the tabernacle. But here God says, put together dirt. And what, Matt, what God is wanting is your obedience. What God wants is your heart. What God wants is what the sacrifice represents. God is making a way. God is providing atonement and worship is drawing near. To stand afar off 
is the opposite of what God invites us to experience in true worship. And how do we experience to draw near? An altar of earth you shall make for me, and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I've caused my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. That is amazing. Do you see that little phrase, I will come to you? Their response was to fear to stand afar off. Worship is to draw near, and God says, you're right to be afraid, so I will make a way. I will speak to you. I will make a way. I will provide the atonement. Worship is God's way. But here is the good news. In worship, God has made a way. What are you going to do with the Ten Commandments? We try to keep them in the fear of the Lord. But you know what will happen tomorrow? You'll, break, you'll probably break ten of them, actually. So you're going to need an altar. And that is what the Lord is teaching the people. The law is teaching the people. The law is always teaching them something about God and about the nature of our relationship with God. I gave you the Ten Commandments. I want you to obey. I do not want you to sin. But this is what I'm going to provide, an altar. A place where sacrifices can be burned to atone for your sin. Do you see how gracious God is? He says, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to make a way for you. Because I know what you're like. I know what you're going to do. Now ultimately, as Revelation unfolds, we see on this side of the cross that we don't need altars. The Lord's table is not an altar. I don't care what they call it in some churches. It is not an altar. Because there is no longer... There is no longer any sacrifice that needs to be made. Because the sacrifice has been made through Christ. And Paul tells us in Romans 12 that if you want to make a sacrifice, this is what you do. Not a sacrifice to atone for your sins, but to present your body as a living sacrifice to live out your whole life for God. So worship is on God's terms and according to God's provision. And that other phrase in verse 24, in every place where I cause my name to be remembered. And when you hear remembered, you should think God's covenant. Exodus 2 verse 24, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And to remember the covenant with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob is to remember the fundamental promise of God that I will bless you. So verse 24 says, I cause my name to be remembered. And as you remember my covenant, I will remember my covenant. The promises of Abraham will be yours and I will bless you. You're going to be a people that do not keep the Ten Commandments perfectly. But you stand in fear. You come in worship and I will come to you. God draws near to us as we draw near to him. So this fear that leads to blessing. There's fear that leads to worship. And when we worship, God remembers his covenant to be a blessing to you. It is the lie of the devil that the fear of God leads to slavery. That's what the devil tells you. You do not need to fear this God. And if you fear him, if you reverence him, if you think he's a God of smoke and that kind of God, you'll never be happy. That's the lie of the devil and millions of people believe it. 
And we see at the end of Exodus 20 the opposite. And in these two little sections, we see that the Christian life is to fear God and to worship him. Because he is God and we are not. And he has made worship possible. Fear leads to blessing. Believe it and you will have life. Doubt it and you allow Satan to get a foothold and whisper in your ear and believe the lies that our world tells us. So fear, worship, blessing. But as we come to the Lord's table in a few moments, just remember the wonder of the gospel. That Christ is the perfect sacrifice. He died in our stead, but he rose again for our salvation. What a saviour is Jesus the Lord. Let's pray. Now, Father in heaven, we do thank you for your word, which teaches us what we ought to do, how we ought to come to you, how we can be right with you. Teach us as your people to fear, to worship and to draw near. Only always and gladly in the name of Jesus. Amen.